Blog Talk Radio. Black Abolitionists by Benjamin Quarles continued. Cassette 5, Side 1. Good evening and blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African Abolitionists by Benjamin Quarles. Continued. Cassette 4, Side 2. Good evening. And blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom. Black Abolitionists by Benjamin Quarles, continued. Cassette 5, Side 1. Good evening, and blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. In May 1841, Governor William H. Seward signed such a bill, and a month later the Vigilance Committee held a victory celebration at Asbury Church. The presiding officer, Charles B. Ray, hailed the measure for sweeping clean from the statute books the last vestiges of slavery in the state. But the law was not firmly enforced at the outset, and before it could prove itself, it was nullified by a Supreme Court decision, Prigg v. Pennsylvania, 1842, giving Congress the exclusive right to enforce the Fugitive Slave Law. Negroes in Boston and Detroit had all Negro vigilance groups, although neither had as dramatic a figure as Ruggles. Founded in Boston in 1842 and lasting for five years, the New England Freedom Association aimed to extend a helping hand to all who may bid adieu to whips and chains. It solicited donations of money or clothing for the fugitives and places of residence, temporary or permanent, and advertised in the abolitionist press for persons who would give them jobs. Two of its seven directors were women. Founded in the same year as its Boston counterpart, the Colored Vigilance Committee of Detroit was headed first by William Lambert and then by George Dubaptiste. In the absence of competing white abolitionist organizations, the Detroit group maintained an independent existence until the Civil War, reaching its peak in the mid-50s. In one two-week period in 1854, the committee gave assistance to 53 freedom-bound blacks, a figure which grew to 1,043 for the period from May 1, 1855 to January 1, 1856. Cleveland had an all-colored committee of nine, of whom four were women, which sped 275 slaves to Canada from April 1854 to January 1855. In Boston and New York, the all-Negro vigilance groups were succeeded by racially mixed prototypes. In Boston, in September 1846, a committee of vigilance was formed by Samuel Gridley Howe following public indignation over the return of a slave who had secreted himself on a vessel bound from New Orleans to Boston. 
The committee included Robert Morris and William C. Nell, along with many prominent white reformers and literary figures. For example, Ralph Waldo Emerson sent word that if the economic well-being of Massachusetts depended upon making Boston a slave port, he would willingly forego such prosperity and turn to the mountains to chop wood. The Boston Committee of Vigilance performed its most conspicuous services in the early 1850s, following the passage of the Fugitive State Law. New York City was the headquarters of another racially mixed group to assist the runaway slave, the New York State Vigilance Committee. Founded in 1847 with the Quaker Isaac T. Hopper as president, but with a membership over 50% Negro, the committee assisted 166 fugitives during its first six months. In 1848, the committee was reorganized with white philanthropist Garrett Smith as president and Charles B. Ray as corresponding secretary. One of the committee's accomplishments during its first year was the instigation of action in the federal courts in nine cases in which a person was held as a slave in a slave state even though he was entitled to his freedom by the laws of the state. From January 1851 to April 1853, the committee assisted 686 former slaves, many of whom received little more than periodic counseling, but of whom 38 were freed after being brought into New York City by their reputed masters. Upstate New York had two interracial slave-assisting organizations, although the one in Albany might well have been called the Myers Vigilance Committee. Its guiding spirit, Stephen Myers, held few meetings, although he acted in the name of the committee. That Myers was able and honest muted any criticism. At Syracuse, the abolitionists founded the Fugitive Aid Society, with Germaine W. Loguen as its manager. Engaged in helping runaways since 1850, Loguen devoted full time to the work beginning in 1857. He wrote letters to the local newspapers, urging their readers to hire fugitives in their shops and on their farms. How many jobs he found for the more than 300 slaves that passed through his hand cannot be known, but it earned for Syracuse the title of the Canada of the United States. Loguen's good work in Syracuse was overshadowed only by that of William Still in Philadelphia, the secretary of the General Vigilance Committee. This organization had a predecessor, the Philadelphia Vigilance Committee, which was founded in 1838 and was in existence six years. This parent group was interracial on paper. Eleven of the thirteen members of the first so-called standing committee were whites. But the president was Purvis, and the agent, executive secretary, was another Negro, Jacob C. White. After 1839, the monthly meetings were no longer attended by whites, so that the committee was all Negro in its operations and increasingly Negro in its personnel. This committee assisted some 300 fugitives a year, its high for one week, the first week in September 1842, running to 26. It dispatched the fugitives to Canada or to David Ruggles in New York. The committee expired in 1844, although many of the former members, Purvis, White, J.J.G. Bias, Daniel Payne, and Stephen H. Gloucester among them, continued to assist slaves in an individual capacity. The successor of this pioneer organization, the General Vigilance Committee, was more consistently interracial. Robert Purvis was made chairman of the new organization, seven of whose 19 founders were Negroes. 
But most importantly, black William Still was made chairman of the four-member acting committee, thus becoming the executive secretary of the organization and its dominant figure. A more resourceful and hard-working operator could hardly have been found. The full scope of Still's activities may be gleaned from his 780-page work, The Underground Railroad, published in 1872. In this fact-crammed, semi-documentary work, Still reproduced scores of letters from workers in the field, such as Joseph C. Bustill from Harrisburg describing the beginnings of the local Fugitive Aid Society. Still exchanged fruitful letters with such white supporters and colleagues as Thomas Garrett in Wilmington, Sidney Howard Gay in New York, Levi Coffin in Cincinnati, and Hiram Wilson at St. Catharines in Canada. Still received scores of letters from fugitives he had helped, such as the one John J. Hill sent from Toronto. I am as free as your President Pierce, only I have not been free so long. It is true that I have to work very hard for comfort, but I am happy, happy. The General Vigilance Committee aided hundreds of black bondmen, the number running to 495 from December 1852 to February 1857. But the episode that still was least likely to forget was the delivery of Henry Brown, shipped in a box from Richmond to Philadelphia by Adams Express. When the shipment reached the anti-slavery office, still one of the four receiving agents pried off the lid. Whereupon the marvelous resurrection of Brown ensued, wrote the author in the Underground Railroad. Rising up in his box, he reached out his hand, saying, How do you do, gentlemen? It was well that Underground Railroad work had its rewards, for there was no lack of problems, a need for funds ranking first. As in the case of all other anti-slavery operations, money was in short supply. The three major sources were Negroes, a sprinkling of whites, and a core of women's groups on both sides of the Atlantic. Negro giving was fair to good. The $284 raised by the New York Vigilance Committee from January 1, 1839 to May 23 of the same year came almost wholly from Negroes. The racial identity of one of its donors in 1837 could hardly be mistaken. George Jones, who had contributed $12.50, was dragged to slavery by an order from our city recorder, according to the committee's first annual report. Many members of the committee pledged themselves to contribute 50 cents a month, and in cases of dire need, the members advanced money out of their own pockets. At its annual meetings, the committee passed the hat, the average collection running to $75. In Detroit, the bulk of the money of the Vigilance Committee seems to have come from collections taken up at meetings, particularly at call meetings growing out of quick-breaking incidents. Some of the funds of the Vigilance Committee of Philadelphia came from small donors, 52 of them contributing a total of $96 from September 11, 1839 to January 13, 1840. This committee also solicited from Negro churches, and it held soirees, raising $42 at one of these held in June 1841. At Rochester, the Negroes systematically aided their hunted brethren, wrote William C. Nell to William Lloyd Garrison on February 19, 1852, having just held a donation festival on their behalf. At Syracuse in January 1859, 
the manager of the Fugitive Aid Society, Jermaine W. Loguen, received a financial contribution from 30 of the escaped slaves for whom he had gotten jobs, some of them adding a personal gift to him, such as an engraved sugar spoon or butter knife. To put something into its ever-exhausted treasury, the New England Freedom Association sponsored juvenile concerts, charging a small fee at the door. On one desperate Sunday in August 1846, the association sent delegates to five of the colored churches in Boston, succeeding in raising a total of $23. Some of the support of the vigilant groups came from white donors. In 1840, the New York Committee received $25 from Arthur Tappan and $10 from John Rankin, both New York merchant abolitionists. At Albany, Stephen Myers could operate independently of his committee because he had only to call upon three wealthy whites for whatever monies he needed. Upon assuming the presidency of the New York State Vigilance Committee in 1848, Garrett Smith authorized the committee to draw upon him for $500 for the year's operations. On occasion, a collection for underground railroad operations might be taken up at an abolitionist gathering, Harriet Tubman receiving $37 from such a source at Framingham, Massachusetts in July 1858. Raising money for fugitive slave assistance had its appeal for wives and mothers. In New York, the Negro women held annual fairs at the Broadway Tabernacle for the benefit of the Vigilance Committee. An admission fee of 12 and a half cents was charged, thus guarding against a poor sale of the useful and fancy articles on display. Many of the women who conducted the fair also worked for the committee by collecting a penny a week from friends. At Syracuse, a group of women busied themselves in soliciting food, clothing, and money, channeling their collections to J.W. Loguen. The women of Philadelphia outstripped all others in the work. Over a four-year span, the Colored Women's Association made donations for fugitive slave work, giving $50 in 1851. The earlier Vigilance Committee had a short-lived women's auxiliary from which it received $10 in 1839. The interracial Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society generally dipped into its treasury after receiving a touching appeal from the committee, usually to the effect that it had on hand a group of fugitives ready to move northward but had no funds to get them on the road. The Society sent $20 in September 1841 $50 in January 1842, and $10 in January 1843, and an additional $25 later that year. In May 1845, the Society gave $10 to one of its members, Hester Reckless, to assist fugitives following her plea on their behalf. Women in the British Isles lent a sisterly hand in the work. Beginning in 1852, the year of its founding, the Glasgow Female New Association for the Abolition of Slavery held an annual bazaar for the New York Vigilance Committee, designating it as the principal recipient of its funds. The New York group also received grants of $50 each from the women in Dundee and Edinburgh in both 1857 and 1858. The Rochester Friends of the Fugitive received $100 in 1857 from the Edinburgh Ladies' New Anti-Slavery Association. The Philadelphia Vigilance Committee received remittances from the women of Dundee and Newcastle-on-Tyne, 
the latter through Anna D. Richardson, who in 1846 had been instrumental in raising $700 to purchase the freedom of Frederick Douglass. In the spring of 1858, the Philadelphia Committee and Thomas Garrett in Wilmington each received $50 from Eliza Wiggum on behalf of the Edinburgh Ladies' Emancipation Society. The work of Loguen at Syracuse drew support from women's anti-slavery groups throughout Great Britain. Edinburgh, Aberdeen, Berwick-on-Tweed, Halifax, Liverpool, Barnsley, and Huddersfield. The women from the land of Daniel O'Connell were not to be left out. The Irish Ladies' Anti-Slavery Society, sending Loguen $73 in February 1859 for the benefit of fugitives coming to his house in Syracuse. It is possible that over the five-year span from 1855 to 1860, Loguen received from the women in the British Isles some $400 a year, a sum which perhaps equaled their combined contributions to the other fugitive aid societies in the United States during the period. Hundreds of women, British and American, white and black, gave sacrificially to help the fugitive slave. But their efforts fell short of the need this phase of the abolitionist crusade sharing with the others a chronic lack of funds. The modest salaries of the full-time agent were generally in arrears. Collections were slow, and only the zeal of the workers kept the work going on as fruitfully as it did. But even the most dedicated worker might have felt a bit dispirited over the plight of the Philadelphia Vigilance Committee, which, as of November 11, 1841, reported that its funds were gone, that it was in debt, and that its total collections over the past month had been a bundle of clothes, two hats, and a bonnet. Resources that were badly needed to help the fugitive from the South went sometimes to unworthy recipients, those who pretended to be runaways or their relatives. Since a fugitive aroused sympathy and received aid, it is not surprising that a small corps of impersonators sprang up. Most impostors claimed themselves to be slaves. Others put forth the more modest honor of being a slave's relative, husband, father, son, or brother, whose freedom they were allegedly raising money to effect. During the first week of December 1839, the Philadelphia Committee of Vigilance turned down the requests of two men claiming to be slaves. Although one of them looked so woebegone that the committee relented and gave him twenty dollars and some food. Generally, the warnings against detected impostors were to be found in the columns of the anti-slavery journals. At Hartford, in the summer of 1845, James W.C. Pennington advised the public to be on guard against one James Thompson, who was passing himself off as a slave from Lynchburg, Virginia. Early in 1850, the abolitionists of New York City were alerted about one William Johnson, an alleged fugitive in search of his alleged spouse. Johnson was all the more reprehensible for having recently deserted a real wife. Late in 1855, an anti-slavery weekly gave a personal description of one O.C. Gilbert, who was pocketing monies he collected for fugitives. Gilbert was a large, robust man, five feet nine inches, of dark brown hue, practically bald and quite bow-legged. Let all the papers pass him around, ran the warning. In January 1858, the inhabitants of Middlesex County, Massachusetts, were warned against a short, slender, light mulatto of 22 who called himself George Thompson. 
namesake of the British abolitionist, this strolling knave, George Thompson, had already collected $15 from sympathizers in Lemonster. Abolitionists were advised that George was a reckless liar, varying his story according to circumstances. The breed was not unknown in England, Reuben Nixon spending a jail term for falsely soliciting funds as a fugitive. Elizabeth Buffum Chase, a Quaker at Valley Falls, Rhode Island, encountered only two known impostors in her long career of helping runaways. But one of these impersonators turned out to have been a hardened criminal. The gentlemanly, light-colored, handsome man she had protected for ten weeks from the slave catchers allegedly trailing him turned out to be an escapee from the New York State Prison at Auburn. Mrs. Chase might have been forgiven, confessing that she had been impressed by his great desire to learn our ideas about right and wrong and for the improvement of himself in all directions. Abolitionist weeklies often advised their readers to be less credulous when approached by someone claiming to be a runaway. Some fugitive aid societies were hesitant about giving assistance unless the alms seeker could produce a certificate of identification from friends or acquaintances in the border states. But such a precaution could have had little real effect. The counterfeiting of certificates of freedom, free papers, was common in underground railroad operations. Hence, a person who chose to become an impostor would have found it no real obstacle to borrow this technique and proceed to acquire forged letters of introduction. To the friends of the fugitive slave, there was one class more hated than the impostors, and this was the informers, those who could be bribed to reveal the whereabouts of a runaway. Levi Coffin, head of the Underground Railroad at Cincinnati, found that not all Negroes were to be trusted in fugitive slave operations. But such a group of betrayers of the slave remained very small, in part because of the adverse publicity given them, and in part due to more forceful action. Dating from its origin, the Negro press printed the names of black informants, Freedom's Journal listing those of Moses Smith, formerly of Baltimore, and Nathan Gooms of New York in its issue of November 7, 1828. The mere appearance of these names in the columns of the weekly was a sufficient deterrent to the other informers whose identity the editors threatened to reveal. When Martin R. Delaney was editor of the Pittsburgh Mystery, he was sued on two occasions for charging Negroes with having assisted the slave catchers. A Negro who assisted the slave catchers ran the risk of bodily harm as two of this ilk found out in Cincinnati. Robert Russell decoyed a fugitive to a wharf where he was seized by his master's agents. But before Russell could enjoy his informant's fee of $10, he was tarred and feathered by a group of young Negro men. In August 1858, two runaways were betrayed by John Brody, who had promised to assist them in returning to Covington, Kentucky, to effect the liberation of relatives. Brody's treachery nearly cost him his life. He was seized by a group of Negroes who proceeded to give him 300 blows with a paddle, a stroke for each dollar he was supposed to have received from the slave catchers. Only the presence of the influential Henry Highland Garnet saved Brody from further punishment. The badly mauled informer delivered himself to the police authorities to be placed in jail for safekeeping. In Jefferson County, Indiana, an informer was whipped within an inch of his life. 
During the court trial, it was impossible to get any Negro to testify against his floggers. Telltale Negroes were dealt with harshly because underground railroad work was hazardous enough as it was. Whether black or white, in the North or South, the benefactor of a fugitive slave ran a variety of risks. Imprisonment was an ever-present threat to those whose theater of activity included the slave states, as some Negro operators could ruefully attest. For journeying into the South to recruit runaways, Samuel D. Burris was placed in jail at Dover, Delaware, for 14 months. He was then auctioned off as a slave to serve for seven years, but his abolitionist friends arranged to have him purchased by a dummy. Elijah Anderson of Indiana died in 1857 at the state prison in Frankfort, Kentucky, where he was serving a term for conducting fugitive slaves across the state line. For the same offense and at the same penitentiary, Oswald Wright of Corydon, Indiana, served a five-year term. Samuel Green, a local Methodist preacher at Dorchester County, Maryland, who attracted public attention upon receiving a sentence of ten years for possessing a copy of Uncle Tom's Cabin, was actually being punished for his suspected aid to fugitives, the original reason that brought the search party to his house. David Ruggles, executive secretary of the New York Committee of Vigilance, had to stay on the alert lest any attempt be made to assault him. He took the precaution of changing his lodging periodically, but this did not save him late one night in January 1837 when a small group attempted to force open his door, possibly with kidnapping in mind. In 1838, Ruggles was jailed for two days on the charge that he had harbored Thomas Hughes, a slave charged with felony. At Columbus, Pennsylvania, Negro businessmen William Whipper and Stephen Smith risked no bodily harm or jail sentence for secreting slaves, but two attempts were made to set fire to their lumber yard. Whites who were made to suffer for assisting fugitives received public expressions of sympathy and esteem from Negroes. Amos Dresser, who had received a public whipping in Nashville in 1836, allegedly for distributing abolitionist literature, received a different reception later that year at Theodore S. Wright's Presbyterian Church and at a crowded call meeting of the New York Committee of Vigilance. Daniel Drayton of the schooner Pearl, who spent over four years in jail for making arrangements to smuggle 77 slaves from Washington to New York in April 1843, was an honored name among Negroes. The Colored Ladies' Anti-Slavery Sewing Circle of Canandaigua sent him seven dollars and an effusive letter, the latter described as being exceedingly gratifying to the feelings of Captain Drayton. In New Haven, at the Temple Street Church of Amos G. Beeman, he spoke to an overflow audience, many of whom purchased copies of his personal memoirs. Perhaps there was a touch of self-guilt in the attitude of Negroes toward Drayton, a colored informer having been a contributing factor in his capture. For assisting runaways, Calvin Fairbanks served two prison terms, totaling nearly 17 years. His first stay came to an end in August 1849, when Lewis Hayden, the former slave whose escape had led to Fairbanks' arrest, raised $650 from 160 donors to pay Hayden's owners, who thereupon joined in the petition for a pardon for Fairbanks. 
Detroit Negroes, led by George DuBaptiste, took up a collection for Fairbank upon his release. In less than three years, however, Fairbank was back in a Kentucky jail, again for aiding a fugitive. This time he remained behind bars until late in the Civil War, in the meantime sending letters to Frederick Douglass and others addressed from Louisville Jail. The fugitive slave movement had its martyr in Charles T. Torrey, who died in a Maryland penitentiary in May 1846. A clergyman abolitionist who felt compelled to live out his convictions about the brotherhood of man, Torrey worshipped only in Negro churches while in Washington in the winter of 1841. From his base at Baltimore, Torrey helped to speed some 400 runaways on the road to freedom over a two-year span. But in 1844, he was charged by a Winchester, Virginia master with helping his slaves escape, and the court sentenced him to six years at hard labor. At Boston, a Tory meeting of Negroes took up a collection of $30 for their jailed friend and called upon the abolitionists in general and the Negroes in particular to rally to his aid. Detroit's black reformers gathered at the First Colored Baptist Church to offer prayers for him. Tory's death in May 1846 brought from Negroes many expressions of grief, mingled with indignation and purpose. At Oberlin, the colored citizens adopted a series of resolutions drafted and read by William H. Day, tendering sympathy to Tory's wife and children, and condemning the governor of Maryland for not having pardoned him so that he might have breathed his last among his native hills. Boston Negroes, meeting in Zion Church on June 15, 1846, voted to erect a monument to Tory and invited the cooperation of colored people throughout New England. On July 31, 1846, the Negroes of the city held a service at Tremont Temple in honor of Tory, with eulogies by John T. Hilton, William C. Nell, Joshua B. Smith, Henry Whedon, former slaves Samuel Snowden and Lewis Hayden, and a visiting speaker, Methodist minister Lucius C. Matlack, a friend of Tory's. Meeting the next day at an August 1st celebration, the colored people of Providence passed a resolution in favor of the Tory Monument proposal made by the Boston Negroes. But the Tory Monument Association received very few contributions, Garrison having expressed the opinion that abolitionist money might be put to better use. The absence of such a stone did not keep Negroes from visiting Tory's grave at Mount Auburn Cemetery at Cambridge, Massachusetts, Daniel Payne making a trip there in the summer of 1850. During the four months he spent in the Moya Memsing prison in 1855, Passmore Williamson of Philadelphia evoked the sympathy of Negroes throughout the North. Williamson, a member of the General Vigilance Committee, was charged with contempt of court for having refused to reveal the whereabouts of three slaves whom he had persuaded to leave their master, no less a personage than the United States minister to Nicaragua, John H. Wheeler. In truth, Williamson did not know the whereabouts of Jane Johnson and her two boys, Daniel and Isaiah, inasmuch as they had been spirited from the wharf by William Still and five Negro porters. Still and his accomplices were brought to trial, two of them, John Ballard and William Curtis, receiving a week in jail for assault and battery on Colonel Wheeler. 
while the trial of the six black rescuers was going on, Williamson remained behind bars. But he received hundreds of letters and scores of visitors. Among the latter was a five-man delegation, George T. Downing, Stephen Myers, Robert Purvis, Charles Lennox Remond, and John S. Rock from the Colored National Convention, which was meeting in Philadelphia in mid-October, 1855. The delegates reported that Williamson had assured them that he would not sacrifice a single principle on the altar of slavery. A month later, the high-minded Quaker was triumphantly acquitted, his case having been greatly strengthened by Jane's testimony that, in the language of the court record, she had willingly left the boat, aided in the departure by several colored persons, who took her children with her consent and led or carried them off the boat and conducted your petitioner and her children to a carriage a short distance from the boat. The friends of the fugitive included a small corps of lawyers, and to these two the Negroes found a way to express their gratitude. At Bethel Church in February 1841, a group representing the colored citizens of Philadelphia gave a set of silver plates to David Paul Brown for his services in defending runaways. At Cincinnati, Sam and P. Chase regularly defended fugitives, receiving no fees for his services but acquiring a silver pitcher from the city's grateful blacks. In July 1851, attorneys E.C. Larned and George Manier each received a silver cup from the colored citizens of Chicago as a token of high regard for their successful services on behalf of Moses Johnson, an alleged fugitive. For their legal services in the Shadrach rescue case in 1851, Richard Henry Dana and John P. Hale received from the Negroes of Boston an eight-volume set of Henry Hallam's Constitutional History of England, which, as the donors pointed out, was a history marked by the progress of free institutions and by the virtue of courage of great lawyers. Both recipients sent gracious replies, Dana stating that the set gave him a feeling of pride and gratification, and Hale saying that he would cherish his set while he lived and bequeath it to his family when he was gone. To a Negro abolitionist, few things could be so satisfying as helping a runaway. But the great majority of black leaders felt that there was a complementary work to be done, one that would not only strike at slavery, but would simultaneously elevate the free Negro. This was the use of political power, getting the ballot and putting it to the proper use. Chapter 8. The Politics of Freedom Political power is a mighty anti-slavery engine. We hold that all true abolitionists should go to the polls and vote. Colored American, August 17, 1839 The right to vote never loomed so large to Negroes as in the two decades before the Civil War. Through political action, slavery might be rooted out and equal justice brought into play. A Negro electorate could give needed support to anti-slavery men and measures in Congress. Fairer treatment of the Negro could be gotten locally if white legislators had to reckon with a colored constituency. But the Negro who wished to vote faced a sea of troubles. The great friend of the colored man, William Lloyd Garrison, decried politics, 
holding that the Constitution was pro-slavery and that all who took an oath of office to support it were ridden with the virus. But Garrison's theories of non-voting and disunion were maintained by only a handful of Negro leaders. Robert Purvis held fast to the Garrisonian viewpoints, crying in May 1857 that the United States government was one of the baddest, meanest, most atrocious despotisms that ever saw the face of the sun. During the same month, Charles Lennox Raymond, in a debate with Frederick Douglass at Shiloh Church in New York, argued that the Constitution was pro-slavery. But in 1848, Raymond had temporarily abandoned his non-voting stance when he cast a ballot for Stephen C. Phillips, free Sowell candidate for governor, justifying his action on the grounds that Phillips had favored larger appropriations for Negro schools. If the great majority of Negroes could not support Garrison's views on politics, they could sympathize with his single-minded devotion to the principle of non-voting. But what left them unsympathetic and stirred up was the lukewarm reaction toward Negro suffrage that characterized the majority of the voting abolitionists. Ahead of their times in some important respects, the abolitionists nonetheless were in the main much like other Americans of their day when it came to political equality for the Negro. The freedom of the slave, yes, but to stand at the polls on a par with the black man, this was another matter. The friends of the colored people took part in anti-slavery work as a matter of duty, wrote the San Francisco correspondent of Frederick Douglass Weekly, but they were no more likely to believe that Negroes were naturally equal to whites than they were to believe that chalk was cheese. Many white abolitionists shared the common belief that political equality would lead inevitably to social equality, something for which they were not ready. Another discouragement for the vote-minded Negro was the legal barrier. By 1860, equal suffrage existed only in New England, excluding Connecticut. In the remaining states, the Negro was barred outright from the polls, or, as in New York, faced with a property requirement. Colored men found their exclusion particularly galling, since it came during a period in which voting rights were being expanded. In many states, the political disenfranchisement of the black man took place almost simultaneously with the removal of all barriers for white men. This conferring of the ballot upon the white working man brought a special problem to the Negro, for it added to the electorate a class which opposed his advancement. The white mechanics and workers in the North feared the Negro as a labor competitor, and this fear was well known to politicians. Increasingly, therefore, the voteless black man became a whipping boy for office seekers pandering to race prejudice. In 1855, a Negro San Franciscan likened the colored people of California to a beast of burden by which political demagogues rode into power. Participation in political life would not be easy for Negroes, this they knew. But the outlook was not wholly bleak. The colored people would have to bear the brunt of the battle themselves, but they knew there were some whites, men of influence, if small in number, upon whom they could count. And best of all, politics and political parties were in a state of flux after 1840, and out of the new equilibrium might come a new niche for the Negro. 
Amid the confusion of parties and the death struggle of old political dynasties, wrote J.W. Loguen to Frederick Douglass in the spring of 1855, we cannot fail to accomplish much with proper exertion. The Negro seeking to strike at slavery through political action operated on both state and national levels. He had to win the ballot in his own commonwealth and then to support the political party best serving his interests in the Congress and, if possible, at the White House. It was the first of these steps that was crucial and difficult. To wipe out the state's legal requirement that the ballot be conferred upon whites only or that Negroes meet special qualifications. Negroes in New York had faced the strings-attached problem since 1821, when a state constitutional convention decreed that before a Negro could vote, he had to own $250 worth of landed property. The convention, and subsequently the voters, ignored a petition of protest from 50 Negroes, 20 of whom could write their own names. In 1826, the state legislature added to the vexation of the Negroes by voting to retain the property proviso. With the rise of the militant abolitionist movement, the colored people throughout the state initiated a drum fire against the restriction. In February 1837, the Negroes of New York City, led by such abolitionist figures as Philip A. Bell, Samuel E. Cornish, Thomas Downing, Thomas L. Jennings, Thomas Van Rensselaer, and Henry Sipkins, held a meeting at which they drafted a petition to the state legislature to remove the Negro suffrage restriction. After the meeting, the petition was kept at Phoenix Hall for three days in order to run up the number of signatures. At the end of this period of grace, the document bore 620 names, 365 of them in the signer's own handwriting, one of which read, Independence Roberts, born on the 4th of July, 1776, in Philadelphia. Placed in a double envelope, the petition was taken to Albany by a special messenger and delivered in person to the mail guard at the State House. Reaching the legislature at the same time were similar petitions from Negroes in Oswego and Genesee counties and Albany. The legislature proved unresponsive thus bringing upon itself the condemnation of a monster meeting of Negro young men in New York City on August 21, 1837, with speeches by Timothy Seaman, John J. Zwill, Henry Highland Garnett, and George T. Downing. The meeting authorized Charles B. Ray and Philip A. Bell to visit Negroes throughout the state, urging them to deluge the legislature with petitions to abrogate the property requirement for Negro voting. The silence of the legislature did not crush the Negroes, since they had decided that if one petition failed, another would be presented. This drafting of petition after petition was the avowed object of the Association for the Political Improvement of the People of Color, formed in New York in July 1838. Two months later, the Association sent a supply of blank petitions to Utica for distribution at the New York State Anti-Slavery Society. With young Alexander Crummel as one of the secretaries at the Utica meeting and Theodore S. Wright as one of the featured speakers, the association felt that the petitions would not lack signers. In the following year, the association held an August 1st meeting in New York City, at which petitions were circulated before and after the oration by Alexander Crummel.
In the summer of 1840, the Negroes held a statewide convention at Albany. Based on the proposition that political disenfranchisement is becoming more and more odious, with Austin Stewart as president and William H. Topp, Charles L. Reason, and H. H. Garnett as secretaries, the convention drew up an address to the colored people of the Commonwealth calling upon them to press for the ballot. Let every man send in his remonstrance. Let petitions be scattered in every quarter. But if the colored people were aroused, the white voters of the state were indifferent making no effort to remove the property proviso for Negroes. With the emergence of the Liberty Party in the 1840s, it was inevitable that the equal suffrage issue would come before the Constitutional Convention of 1846. This body referred to the question to the electorate, with results that were hardly surprising. This book is continued at this point on the other side of this cassette. Please reverse or turn the cassette over now.